0: The title of this morning's message is something to do with Israel. Really, it symbolizes the last few verses. But to me, it, it, this is a summation of chapter 10. And it, the question is why, really for us, why does Israel not recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah? They are God's chosen people, They're, we call them God's elect. And they do not recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as a whole. We understand that some individuals um, end up uh, opening their hearts up to the truth, but in general, not happening. Firstly, though, when we're going through 9 to 11, and I don't know, I'm just curious, provide me feedback on, on whether you find Romans 9 to 11, keeping in mind we've only just gone to chapter 9, we're finishing chapter 10. Then chapter 11 um, will start in February, by the way. So I'm not touching Romans. We're parking on the side of the road till February, the first week. But has anyone found this interesting? Because from what I hear, the majority of Christians just avoid these three chapters. Because, it, well, it is more uh, logical that when you finish reading chapter 8, you go straight into chapter 12. We want to see how to live it out. And a lot of people avoid even preaching 9 to 11, because in some ways it's confusing, because it involves Israel. It's, It's about Israel. But even though Romans 9 to 11 is directed towards Israel, the question is, can we still apply it to our lives this morning, today? The answer is obvious, yes. But I guess it's with any, any um, uh, scripture, for example, any, any books of the Bible where we say it's not directed to us, to, towards us. For instance, you know, if you have your Bibles there, look at James. Look at the book of James right now, chapter 1. You know, who's that directed to? When you read Hebrews, a Hebrew is pretty much a Jew, Israel. Can we still apply that to us today? And I say the answer is yes. So even though there are passages directed to a particular audience, it doesn't mean we can simply ignore it. There is application for us today. Do you know why? Because we're doing the same things that the Jews did 2,000 years ago. We're doing it now today. We're committing the same um, atrocities that really (laughs) just limit God and who He is. It's it's, it's amazing how much I find, um, how much resemblance there is from society as there was even 2,000 years ago. It's, it's quite mind-boggling. So even though there's a different audience, I think we can still um, apply it to us today, and that's why I believe Romans 9:11 is not just important in regards to us understanding God's plan from creation to now. That's good, because it, it helps us understand who God is. But the secondly I think we can also apply the principles that Paul is trying to draw out in in Romans when he's addressing the Israelites or the Jews. So verse 14, let's get into it. We're in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So notice these questions. I'll just read through these questions. These are rhetorical questions, but I'm sure you know the answer which Paul seems to do a lot in his writings. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So again, calling relates to verse 13. I don't have verse 13 there. If you have your Bibles there, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, we can apply that today, but last week I mentioned, I don't think he's applying it to us today. I think he's applying it to when the Jews will actually do it through the great tribulation during the Great Tribulation. And so the saving is actually not necessarily about salvation, even though that's more to it, but specifically I think it's talking um, about how the Jews are calling for salvation from the Antichrist. That will be causing havoc, um, and all the things that we're told about in Scriptures that are going to happen. So, how, but how would they do that? How how can we do that? Because we can still apply that to us today. Um, How will we believe? I'll I'll keep to the verse. How will they believe in in him whom they have not heard? That's logical, isn't it? That's logical. I can't believe in someone who I haven't heard about. Um, How will they hear without a preacher? That's logical. That's logical. Which, I thought of this when I saw that. How were they here without a preacher? Is there still a place, and this addresses us today, is there still a place for open evangelism today? Because I've spoken to a lot of Christians about this, and I get 50-50. I get, uh, I don't know, when I say open evangelism, I'm talking about those people that... You street preachers, they're out on the roads and they're, they're evangelizing. Is there still a place for that? Unfortunately, I've heard some Christians say, I don't think there is. Everyone knows about Jesus Christ. They've made their decision. Even with going the extra step further, where those who are proclaiming from a microphone, we don't get so much of this in Australia, more in America, where they're they're actually, they have a microphone. You've got a little speaker and you're on the street corner and you're proclaiming the gospel. Is there still a place for it? I say yes. What makes us think that really it was the primary means when you look at the apostles of how people came to faith? The first one, Peter, Peter first sermon, 3,000 people come. That was street preaching. What makes us think that that's no longer applicable for us today? What makes us think that that's no longer effective today? Now, I will make a confession. I believe it's not as effective as what we call relational evangelism. Relational evangelism where we get to know our friends and our families more. We get alongside them. We build a relationship and then have the opportunity Praying for the opportunity to evangelize to them. That's more effective, I think. But is there still a place for the open one? For sure, yes. Um, in, my cont- in, my, in my personal life, I do find it harder to open evangelize because you are limited to a specific time. Depending on the person, of course. The last time I did it, um, a couple of weeks ago, the, I think there was, there was a couple, and, and the wife walked away, the husband was kind enough to stay, um, but you still feel this time frame where you know, you're, 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 you're just uh, enslaved to this limited, limited time frame. So um, definitely not as effective, but surely there is still a place for it. And not necessarily for everyone as well. But how will they preach unless they are sent? That's an interesting thing. How will they preach, and now we're talking about the preacher, unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So notice it's in capital letters, and therefore Paul has specifically referenced an Old Testament scripture to back up his reasoning of what he's trying to say. Um, Isaiah 57 is all I got. Uh, I forgot to finish that reference. So if someone can help me later on, that would be good. Look at Isaiah 57. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So if you're very literal, don't think of feet as in our physical feet. Obviously this is an analogy, a symbolism. So here's a question. How are your feet looking? depending on your age i'm sure you're shocked with some of the ways your point, uh, your toes are pointed right now but how beautiful are the feet so we're talking about evangelism here remember we're referencing a time period where no cars no technology nothing like that how was the gospel message proclaimed Well, someone walking into the town and declaring the good news. How beautiful are those people? Beautiful, probably in our day, probably not the best word. How wonderful could be better. How wonderful you hear those people. How wonderful it is just to share the good news. I'm sure when you reflect on the first time you heard the good news and you responded to it, I'm sure you're thankful for that person, yes? You're thankful. Some of you might might even know that person that shared the good news with you. You're thankful. How wonderful they are. How wonderful are you when you do it to your loved ones, when you even do it to some strangers? How beautiful, how wonderful are those who bring good news of good things. Because remember, this is good news that we're declaring this morning, that we declare every day, that we've experienced, that we've accepted, that we've received. It's good news. And we'll get into that on why a little bit later. But however, oh, however, they did not all heed the good news, did they? They didn't listen to you, did they? When's the last time you shared the good news? hoping you can remember. Did they receive it well? Or were you outright rejected? Or were you subtly rejected? Were you like, uh, no, I'll come to church, and then they don't show up, or, you know, you ever had those people? Or, not for me. Not for me. Let's talk about something else. They didn't do it, did they? they not everyone hears to it. Not everyone receives it. Not everyone fully accepts it as truth. Well, again, this was prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah. Uh, this is, again, in that chapter 53, the, 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 the messianic chapter of Isaiah. If you want to have a look there. Who has pleaded a report? Well, not many. But guess what? There has always only been a remnant of Jews who believe. There's only been a small amount that believed. And this was what chapter 9 was addressing. Remember? The start of chapter 9, verse 6. Well, hardly any of the Jews believe. So, God, your plan must have failed, your word must have failed. But we're told at the end of that chapter, remember, that Isaiah cries concerning Israel, if the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant who will be saved. They shouldn't be surprised that there was only a remnant, a small amount that only believed. But it was necessary, it was always necessary that only a small amount believed. If no one believed, well, how would the message be passed on? There was always a small amount, though. And then when we come into chapter 11, I think there's a one time, and I believe I, I, I take chapter 11 literally, I think it's 7,000 only at one time I believe and we're not told who they are. So I look forward to getting into that. So the general consensus is so faith comes from hearing. And so I specifically chose this modern translation, the new living translation, because it's hearing the good news about Christ. Um, when we say, I don't want to get too much into this, but hearing the word of God, I think it's in, it's in my Bible, hearing the, hearing, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God we, uh, if we get too literal, we think that it's just by this actual um, book that we do this. Um, so, reading it, which again can apply to this verse, but this word of God, uh, and particularly where it has, I'm not sure actually, does it have. No, it does it good. Um, The word of God, we're not talking about the same word as we find in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. This word is just the literal word, a saying, a a speech, an utterance. Okay? But that utterance doesn't have to be an audible utterance. Correct? This utterance could be a communication that's nonverbal. If I'm reading, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think of those people who are found in the hotel room and they find the Gideon's Bible. They didn't hear a speech about Jesus, did they? They read the speech about Jesus. It's really the gospel we're talking about. The gospel. Faith comes from hearing. Now, I underline hearing Hearing, because, have you ever heard this? I'm sure you've heard this saying. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. You've heard that. Now, if you haven't heard that, then this is actually half good. Because it's it's mainly talking about, you know, Christians actually being a witness, being the salt and the light of the earth. How many Christians do you know that they're not really living a life that is honourable to God? You can't really look at them and, and say they're a Christian. But the problem with taking this too far is that there are some Christians who say, well, don't you think that we're preaching the gospel just by having... A coffee at the local cafe? There, there's that mentality. Just by being who we are, doing the right thing, being a witness, and then, if necessary, use words, that's, that's where it has a problem. Because I'm just told, faith comes from hearing. Hearing. Faith does not come from seeing who you are. Faith comes from hearing you are. So words are very necessary. Words are extremely important. The gospel is extremely important to be able to clarify, to be able to articulate in a a very succinct way, in a very simple way. So the skill that we should be learning as Christians is, hmm, what style would suit that particular person that I know? What method? But at the same time, content is what really matters. In fact, it's clarity of the gospel is what is crucial. And this is the sad thing that's happening in the church today. We're not really being proclaimed the gospel in churches. We're being proclaimed another good news. The majority of the church today, unfortunately, is proclaiming a good news in the fact that we can become healthy. That we can become wealthy if we believe in Jesus. Because without faith, you can't have those things. Sometimes this is really out there, and sometimes it's just subtle. I know we even have churches, Sally and Harvey Bay, that proclaim that gospel. Believe in Jesus because He will take care of your every need. He will make you healthy here on earth. He will make you wealthy if you just have enough faith in Him. This is not the good news. The good news is that Christ Jesus died for us. So, if anything, please, please know to a T how to proclaim the gospel, what the gospel actually means. And it's simple. It's very simple. Pretty much, there's a gap between me and God. I want to access God. Everyone wants to access God, and I'm talking about religious people, sensible people. Remember? Remember? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So someone who says there is no God, very rarely will you get to the point of proclaiming the gospel because you're just getting into the simple simple concept of the existence of God. I'm talking about people who, uh, they want access to God. They want to know God, but there's a gap. The gap is sin. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. The problem with that sin is that it leads to death. We will never have access to God. We will always be separated from God. The wages of sin is death, gift of God's eternal life. Now, how do we solve that gap? Well, there needs to be a bridge. The bridge is the cross. The cross allows me to gain access to God. What's the cross? What's the bridge? Well, God. I, I said in my prayer this morning, actually, God commended his love towards us. Uh, in what? Well, yet, sinners, Christ died for us. And so, just because the, there's a cross there, how do I actually cross that bridge? Faith. Faith alone. Romans 5 1. By faith alone, we have peace with God, we have access to God. That's four simple concepts. Four simple concepts. We've sinned. The consequences of sin are death. There's a bridge called the cross. Faith alone in that cross gets us over that bridge. However way you want to express it. But you need to know that. For the opportunity to proclaim the good news. But here's the objection. The objection is really what Paul is addressing from the rest of the chapter. These are objections from the Israelites excuse number one for instance we were never told we were never told this he says this in the next verse verse 18 rhetorically asks again but I say surely they and of course the they is talking about um, his fellow Jews they have never heard have they they've never heard indeed they have and then he references Psalm 19 which is very interesting Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles in Psalm 19, what does Psalm 19 talk about? Psalm 19 talks about (laughs) creation and how we look at creation, we see see God. We see God. Why would Paul reference this? Remember that there's a very clever thing that Paul does because you might be asking, why does Paul... Paul used all these references to the Old Testament scripture. And it's because of his method of preaching the gospel right now. He knows that his method really will be um, applicable in the Jewish lives to something that they know. What do they know? They know the Old Testament, they know it inside out. Remember, these laws were, these, these, these books were pretty much literally um, connected to their heads in their hearts and everywhere around their body, physically. They know this. And this is where uh, a really, uh, a brilliant teacher comes into mind, because it's one thing for a teacher, or a preacher, or a pastor, whatever you want to call them, just to, to know what this passage means. But it's another thing to try to get you to understand it. And just like a classroom these days, it's very hard just to, have one method of teaching to apply for everyone in the same class. Same with the church. We all have different learning methods. And this is where a pastor's job is really hard because I have to adapt all these different learning styles in the room. And I know for the majority, probably this just goes over your head. And that's where I'm trying to invite you to continue the conversation. Because if there's something you don't understand, feel free to email me. Feel free to ask more. Because what am I here? Am I expect you just to sit here for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and understand everything that I say? Of course not. So if there's something, you go back home, you, you read the passage again, you don't understand it, it's a simple email. You know, I actually should be, most of my week, answering emails about questions that I've said that Sunday. But I think it's a culture that We've too long just been listening to a preacher, listening to a monologue and say, oh, yeah, that's good for Sunday. I'm off to do my thing for the rest of the week. And, oh, we'll come back next week and I might learn some more. It's a continual process, just like it is in a school classroom. But What he's doing here, this is a passage that reflects, really it says to the Jews, hmm, the, the Jews would have read Psalm 19 and said, oh man, these Gentiles, these, these these other nations. You just have to look at creation and see that there's a God. And see what, what, what's right in front of your face. And in a way, I think Paul's referencing them and saying, oh, Jews, look at not just creation, but look at what's been, look, look at what hap- what's happened in the last um, 100 years, particularly uh, roughly around, mm, what is it about say, about... 50, 60 years ago? Look, look what's happened. Look what's happening right now. We're proclaiming Jesus to you. It's right in front of your faces. It's right near you, as we've just read in the start of chapter 10, and you're just ignoring it. Ah, oh, this is a great question for us. Have you ever heard someone, maybe someone's asked you this. What about those who have never heard the gospel? Is God unfair? This is a, We're talking about apologetics here. So if you have a friend who's questioning you on this, what about those who have never heard the gospel? Is God unjust? Isn't God, let's put it bluntly, isn't God unfair that he would just send them to hell? All those people in those Papua New Guinea tribes, all those cannibals that they've never heard of Jesus Christ, what's, what's going on there? Isn't that unfair that God would judge them? All right, how, do you, how do you answer that? And actually, you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 20, notice that we will be without excuse, not because we haven't heard of Jesus Christ, but because of creation. Isn't that interesting? For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we're not without excuse because we haven't trusted in Jesus, we're actually without excuse because of creation, here it says. So this is my opinion. Again, it can only be an opinion because we're talking about the ways of God and not everything that God has done is clearly laid out in scriptures. We have to get into his mind. So getting to the mind of God is sometimes easy, but sometimes quite complex. So this is why I say an opinion so everyone in the world regardless of where you are has creation as their witness the testimony of God comes from creation everyone who lives in this world can't just come say and I'm sure you've been there what is this place that we're in why are we here what's going on you am I now a person has a choice ignore that and just continue living life, or pursue it. The ones who pursue it, the ones who pursue it, in my opinion, God will lead them to a place where they will hear about Jesus. But only for those who want it. Only for those who want to know what's truth. I think there's a majority of people out there, and again, you can see how in this opinion, but it's a response to an argument that, um, uh, to me, it's satisfactory for my reasoning. And I'm, I'm a very questioning person. I question a lot. So um, I use an example of Lydia. Lydia in Acts 16. She is quoted as being a fearer of God. She wasn't a Christian, but she feared God. How do you get that? Someone who knew there was God and she knew and I think it's in us that God is an almighty being, an intelligent being, even a holy God. I believe that's just in us. But Lydia, only when she heard the the words coming from Paul was she then saved. Then she became a Christian. Why was she called a God-fearer when she wasn't even a Christian? And it's because of that reverence that she had towards creation and the place that she was in. Excuse number two. We'll find in the next verse. We were never told clearly. He says, but I say, surely Israel did not know. Did they? They did not understand is probably a better word. Because we talked to what they didn't hear, but did they understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation by a nation without understanding will I anger. Man, this reference has really perplexed me the last few weeks. This is actually a song, if you read Deuteronomy 32. A song! This is Moses singing to the people. And he says this. I wonder if he says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger. And you hear that. And you think, what did he just say? He's saying, Speaking for the Lord, I will make you jealous. Do yourself a favor. Read Deuteronomy 32. The whole chapter is a song. Interesting. They had that in front of them this whole time, these scriptures. So what's he saying? Well, look at the next reference. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Who do you think he's referencing here? Who are the people who did not seek him? Who are the people who did not ask for his manifestation to be revealed to him? It's us. The Gentiles, yes. It's the Gentiles. They had this clearly foretold, prophesied before them. This was clear to them. Just some other references that um, God makes it clear to them. In Isaiah, again, "...so shall he sprinkle many nations..." The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. And then another one, Isaiah 49, 6. It is too light a thing. It's not enough, for instance, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Just, you know, Israel only, to bring back the preserved of Israel. But I will make you a, as a light for all the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You know, there's still some Jews that think, oh, that's, we're his special people, and only us. Those Gentiles, you Gentiles, you have no idea what you're talking about when you, when you, when you preach about Jesus Christ. We're the important ones. But here they're, they're told. Salvation will be granted to the ends of the earth. So they had plenty, plenty of warning. Um, to understand. And then the last verse where he finishes off, the next verse in Isaiah 65. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So for the young people in the room, obstinate means stubborn. They are a stubborn people. They are a disobedient people. And notice how he stretched out his hands all day long. And so if you have Calvinist friends, this is a great verse, which I wonder what they think. What goes through their minds? Because this to me is a, is a very blatant inconsistency with their doctrine. When you believe that God gives you the faith to believe, why in the world is he waiting, is he stretching out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people? When it's up to him for them to obey, for them to not be stubborn. That's a blatant contradiction. And so that to me um, does not make sense. It's a great verse to confront a Calvinist with, if you know of any. Now, I could be tempted to read this verse, and a lot of preachers do this. I could use this to guilt trip you right now. That's my temptation, to take this out of context even though I'm doing an expository preaching, i still got to guard myself on using this, for instance, because I could say, oh, people, what are you doing? God's stretching out your hand towards those. He knows that you disobeyed Him. You know, those of you who have been stubborn, you're, you're, you're quenching the Spirit. You're not doing what God wants you to do. Wake up, people. But I won't. Because that's, that's false. This verse does not apply to you if you are a Christian. This is talking about a non-believer. Now, just because it's directed towards the Jews, I still believe all the Gentile unbelievers who haven't accepted Christ as their Savior don't truly believe it in their hearts. I think God's stretching out His hand. He's doing it every day, all the day long. You're disobedient? Yes. You're stubborn? Yes. But He still wants you to come. That's anyone in this room that hasn't truly believed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That applies to us if you're not a Christian, if you haven't called upon the name of the Lord to save you. But remember, The the, the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a disobedient people. You are no longer a stubborn people. Even though there might be a season and time where you do become disobedient. You do become stubborn. You do quench the spirit. You grieve the spirit. You ignore that voice that's saying, hey, 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 get back into church. Hey, hey, hey. Get back right with that person that you've been having a fight with. Hey, 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 get out of that sin, that lust, that temptation that's been besettling you every single day. You're still not disobedient in God's eyes. A lot of Christians don't understand that. And I come back to the the definition of what it means to be justified. Justification comes by faith alone, firstly. And secondly, remember our slang term to understand what justification means is God treats us just if I had never sinned. Just if I'd never sinned. So he, if he declares me just if I'd never sinned, why would I be called a disobedient and stubborn person? Even though to us, I'm still being disobedient. And that's, that's the magnificence of grace. That's grace. That's amazing grace. So why does Israel not recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah? Well, here's the summation. Here's the three reasons that Paul has pretty much um, explained in chapter 10 as we've read it all. Number one, Israel pursued righteousness by obeying the law rather than by faith. They blatantly did it themselves, what they thought was right. Secondly, they ignored the teachings about righteousness being attained by faith alone. Ignored it, not just from the prophets, but also from the apostles. And then number three, it came to the point where they just downright refused. They refused the many opportunities to accept Christ's righteousness by faith Alone. The interesting thing that I find in chapter 11 is that they'll eventually do it. They're eventually going to accept it, which I find very interesting. I had to ask the question: What's your excuse if you are in this room and you you don't have faith in Christ? What's your excuse? And if if you do have one, well, here's my encouragement. You can make it your excuse or you can make it your story. I hope that everyone in this room, before they leave these doors, has either remembered a time where they've made it their story or start your story today. Let's thank God that we have a story to tell. Father God, we thank you for the words of Paul in this, what seems like a very complex chapter, but in reality we know, as we've just gone a few weeks of studying it, how simple it is and what it actually means for us. Help us apply. You may have revealed to us today whether you've revealed some kind of sin that you'd like us to repent of, or maybe it's the case where you actually you want us to place our, our trust in you as Jesus Christ, Lord. Father, we commit ourselves to you in whatever way you seem appropriate, whatever way you deem fit. And we just thank you for the time we've had just to open up your word and to draw application from it. We just pray that we'll just not just be hearers of your word this morning, but doers of your word. We thank you, give you all the glory, in Jesus' name, amen.